Amen. Well, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning, it is Reformation Sunday. And as I wrote in the article, which is in your bulletin, I'm taking a break from our series in Genesis to consider the Protestant Reformation, a weekly devotional in your bulletin every week. Uh, I talk about the Reformation in a little more detail. Let me begin this morning by taking you back uh, more than 500 years, 506 years to be exact, to a hot, humid afternoon in July 1505. A brilliant young law student was traveling near the village of Stotternheim, Germany, in what was then Electoral Saxony. He had recently earned his master's degree and he had a promising and lucrative law career ahead of him. But as often happens on hot summer days, the sky, without warning, quickly darkened and a wind began to blow. And suddenly sheets of rain poured down and out of nowhere a huge bolt of lightning struck so near the traveler that he was knocked to the ground. And fearing God's wrath, if he should perish in that storm, the terrified young man cried out, Help me, Saint Anne, and, and I will become a monk. And so the man who would later renounce the cult of the saints prayed to a saint. And the man who would later condemn the whole system of monasticism entered an Augustinian monastery just 15 days later in nearby Erfurt, Germany. Of course, you know the man's name was Martin Luther. He was 21 years old at the time. And as I wrote to you in the article, on October 31st, 1517, which we remember as Reformation Day 506 years ago, that now 33-year-old monk and priest and doctor of the church nailed 95 theses for academic disputation to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. We mark it as the beginning, and rightly so, of the Protestant Reformation, of the Reformation of the church. What was the fundamental teaching of the Reformation, and why do Reformed churches around the world remember it with reverence and thanksgiving? That's what we're going to look at in our text this morning. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you that you, by your grace, have formed and made and sustained the church. And Lord God, that you reformed and sent revivals, especially that great revival and reformation that we are still rejoicing in and benefiting from to this day, the reformation of the church. Father, how we pray that you would bless that moment and those graces that you poured out to us even to this day that we would be blessed, that we would grow in the truth that even if our bodies die, we'll continue to remain before you. So bless this word, we pray to each and every one. In Jesus' name, amen. Just two verses this morning. Give your attention to the word of God from Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning, I pray. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the good news of the gospel. I want you to notice the good news of the gospel. The word gospel just means good report or good news or good tidings. And in its verb form, it's found in a multitude of books in the Old Testament. It's only found in its noun form in one place in 2 Samuel. And in fact, in, its, uh, Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Greek translation, I'm obviously talking about the Old Testament, the word gospel in, in the verb form appears more times in 2 Samuel than any other book in the Old Testament. Doesn't that surprise you? You would think it'd be Isaiah, right? Or maybe the Psalms. But more times in 2 Samuel do we get euangelion, the noun form. It's, only, it's there in the only place in the Old Testament. Or euangelizo, the verb form of gospel, which again means good news or good tidings. And that's because if you think about it, what's going on in 2 Samuel and at the end of 1 Samuel? The wars of David. David's fighting all these battles. He's securing the kingdom. He's conquering the enemies of God's people. And what was crucial in that day, in the time of war, is the news that you would be able to get or get back to the king in the city so they would know, do we need to send reinforcements? Do we need to fortify the city for, for an invasion or for a coming siege? So that report, that news was absolutely crucial. And how good and how blessed it was when that runner would come over the hill and the watchman on the wall who was constantly waiting for the messenger, the watchman to bring the news of the battle would, as we read in Isaiah 52, verse seven, bring good news. And no doubt the watchman could see that, you know, as he came over the hill, if he was sort of running wearily and scared and looking over his back, man, you know, it's bad news, right? You know, before he gets there. But if he's pumping his arms and his head is held high and his feet are just kicking up the dust, you knew it was good news. And that's exactly what Isaiah meant when he said in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. They could see it as he was coming. It's going to be good news. And how beautiful that sight was as you're waiting for it. Who proclaims peace, Isaiah says. Who brings glad tidings of good things. Who proclaims salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. It's victory. It's peace. God's enemies have been defeated. God reigns, the messenger would say. And that's what the word gospel means. It's that good news, that's good report that we get in our text. I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? What is the gospel? Good news, good report, good tidings that again, most often came in the time of war. And interestingly, when both John the Baptist and Jesus begin preaching in the New Testament, after 400 years of prophetic silence, they begin to talk about the gospel. And it's almost exclusively the gospel of the kingdom of God. When Jesus preaches, when John the Baptist preaches, they speak of the gospel of the kingdom. That, that kingdom that Israel was so interested in preserving and then after they lost it, getting it back. And so their hopes were tied up in the, the kingdom that they would get it again. 
that the gospel, the good news would come that God was restoring his kingdom. And they rightly believed that the kingdom would be restored through the Messiah, and it most certainly was. And so Jesus, in the very first verse that he's mentioned speaking in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Jesus came to Galilee preaching, listen, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Do you see that? The gospel was about the kingdom, what the Jews were waiting for. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, that time of longing and waiting. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so what? Repent and believe the good news. I'm bringing you good news. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming. The king has come. Israel's hope, again, in that restoration that the Messiah would accomplish. But the ultimate hope that we don't want to forget, the purpose for the kingdom of Israel wasn't just some temporal, earthly, political realm. Remember, God's promise to Abram more fundamentally and more foundationally was, I am your exceedingly reward. I am your everlasting inheritance. I am your shield. I will be your God. You will be my people. That was the ultimate promise, overcoming the separation of the fall of man in the garden, that the seed of the woman would do that. And so Abram is understanding that he is now promised that seed of the woman. But the ultimate promise was salvation, not just political sovereignty. And unfortunately, in the hundreds of years since Israel had been a captive or had lost the kingdom, they had forgotten that, many of them. Many of them just wanted that sovereignty again, as if that was going to solve all their problems. We'll have our independence again. They had their independence for over 500 years in the time of the judges and in the time of the kings. Well over 500 years, they were a politically sovereign, independent nation. And how did that solve their problems? There was still labor. There was still sweat. There was still sorrow. There was still suffering. There was still pain. There was still death. That isn't the ultimate answer. The priesthood itself and the sacrificial system cried out for something to bring an end to this system, something to fulfill it, something to, to bring it to pass, that it was completed at last. And so the ultimate hope was not that kind of kingdom. And that's why Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. They needed repentance because the focus ultimately always was eternal life by believing in the salvation of God. R.C. Sproul notices that when you get to the epistles, the way in which the apostles used the gospel is clearly about the message and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. The teaching and the work, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You can see that in many places throughout the New Testament epistles. And so whereas in the four Gospels, we see Jesus and John talking about the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom has come, we recognize that in the epistles, Jesus having taught them the significance of his person and works, that the kingdom really is bound up in him. It's in what he did, and it's in what he said. But in his lifetime, that wasn't clear, remember? Because he, he kept the messianic person that he was mostly a secret he would tell his disciples don't tell anybody because he had to accomplish the work 
before the kingdom was conquered. And then he could bring it in by faith. And so in the epistles, we read things like this. Paul just opening up in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the gospel of the kingdom of God anymore. I mean, it is, but we understand that it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who has brought the kingdom, who is now sitting at the right hand of God, reigning over the kingdom because he has defeated his and our enemies. That's what he did in his life. That's why he talked about the kingdom's about to come. Repent and believe because I'm going to conquer your enemies, which are sin and Satan and the world and the flesh and the devil. And yes, ultimately the wrath of God, which is what would bring us a curse forever if Christ didn't take it away. And not only that, accomplish our righteousness. So it's the gospel of God, Romans 1.1. The gospel of his son, Romans 1.9. And look at our first verse, the gospel of Christ. The good news is Christ. That's how the kingdom comes. Not by a political party. Not by a powerful lobbying group. Not by an army. The gospel comes by Jesus Christ bearing our sins on the cross. That's how the kingdom comes. And by establishing our righteousness in his 33 years of perfect obedience. That's how the kingdom comes. Not by man. Not by man's might or power or wisdom. But by the cross. That's why it was a stumbling block to Israel. They wanted it to be by their army, by their power. They were going to defeat the Romans. They had to die spiritually. They had to die to self and believe entirely in Christ, whose death alone takes away the curse, whose life alone gives the righteousness. This is the gospel. And as we see in the epistles also, there is another use of the word gospel, a final use. And that is the gospel comes to be or comes to refer to how it is that we can apply that objective saving work of Jesus to ourselves subjectively. That's the words R.C. likes to use, R.C. Sproul, that it's an objective saving work, but we only receive it subjectively. You recognize that, right? You can't have objective faith, impersonal faith. You're a person. You have to have subjective faith. You can't have objective repentance. You're a person. You have to have subjective. You can't have objective assurance, impersonal assurance. You have to have personal subject. You're a subject. You can only ever have subjective anything. So we have to take that work of Christ and appropriate it to the believer. And that's what the gospel is. How do you do that? How do you get the saving work of Christ, the gospel, the way in which the kingdom comes, how do you receive it? Paul writes about this, 1 Corinthians 15. Brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. You see, the gospel causes us to stand because it's the message about how to be saved. By which also you are saved. You're saved by the gospel, the message. Which, uh, if you hold fast the word that I preach to you. Beloved, that's what our text is. Our text is telling us the way of salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For everyone, for it, I'm sorry, the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation. The gospel itself is the power of God to salvation because the gospel tells us 
the way in which Jesus accomplished our salvation. He propitiated God's just wrath against our sins. He expiated our guilt and he earned all of our righteousness. And the gospel tells us how we receive it. It's the gospel of salvation. It's the good news that we are saved by faith in Christ. And so secondly, I want you to notice God's power for salvation. God's power for salvation. The gospel is the good news of our salvation because it tells us about a power that does avail for sinners in order to save them because that's what we need. The greatest hope for Israel was that there would be a powerful enough force to conquer their enemies, right? You could think of Samson going out in his power and conquering the Philistines or David in his might uh, conquering the Philistines and the other enemies of Israel, or maybe even the power of Solomon in his mind, right? Because he was so wise and all of those things. But none of those things could avail for salvation. Because Israel's ultimate enemies were not Egypt or the Canaanites or the Philistines or the Babylonians, but the curse of sin that hangs over every person's head. The curse of sin. And the blessing of righteousness and of the fellowship with God that we lost in the garden and that we have no way to get back. Because God is holy and righteous and man has fallen and a sinner, he's dead in sin. And that's the question that the gospel answers. How can sinful man be acceptable, be right in the eyes of a holy God? The psalmist says it at one point, how can, a, how can a clean thing come out of an unclean thing? According to the ceremonial law, it's impossible because anything an unclean thing touches becomes unclean. And that, was, that question is asked in our salvation. How can sinful man stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God who must, because he's holy, because he's righteous, he must punish sin. And this is something that both general and special revelation make known to man that he is a sinner, that he's guilty before God. There are many verses in Romans 1 that we could look at to show this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What may be known of God is manifest in them. God has shown it to them. So everybody knows we see God's judgment in the world. We see things die. We th see pain and suffering. We see sickness. We see thorns. We see thistles. These are things that God put in the world when man fell in a greatly, greatly restrained judgment because he should have thrown us all into hell. Let's never forget that. The judgment is to lead us back to him, to cause us to cry out to him. That's the purpose for it. The restrained judgments on this fallen world. And God shows man that he's a sinner and all know the righteous judgment of God, Romans 1.32, that those who practice such things deserve death. So everybody knows that they should repent of God, that they should seek God. Romans 2.15, they show the work of the law written on their conscience, their consciences bearing witness, sometimes accusing, sometimes excusing them. I think the, the witness of the conscience that we all know and experience is one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God. Because every person understands that they have this, this thing inside them that holds them accountable, that makes them feel bad when they do wrong, that makes them feel good when they do right. This thing that's over them, that judges them, that they can't even silence when they want to. It's not them. If it was just them, they could stop it. There's a conscience in us. 
makes us have to wrestle with guilt when we know we've done wrong and everybody experiences this. Where does that come from? If it's just you, then tell it to stop. Everybody knows this. Everyone knows that we are sinners. And yet the vast majority of mankind throughout the ages has held that it's through philosophy, that it's through self-discipline, that it's through education, that it's through self-help, that it's through maybe even diet and exercise, that we can muster up some inner goodness, that we can improve ourselves, that we can become better, that we can become virtuous, that we can improve morally, that we can work our way closer to salvation. That has been the overwhelming view and opinion of the entire world. Yet that very attitude is judged by God as a rebellion against him because we know better. Even as we're holding on to that thought, we are suppressing the truth of our own unrighteousness, of our own godliness. This is the condition of fallen man. And it's great pride to think that we can improve ourselves when we know that we're dead in sin, something that both God's word and the world itself constantly tells us. And so it seems to me that it's not an accident that as our world, in all of its different institutions and uh, academic and educational organizations, as it declares more and more that we have a certain knowledge, that we have a certain ability, at the same time denying the truth of God that it knows, that everyone knows, denying the, the truth of God's morality that it knows and everyone knows, that the knowledge that we do have becomes more corrupt, becomes more incorrect, becomes more destructive becomes more deadly. Are we not seeing it today? I mean, we're told on the one hand, trust the science. And science can't tell us what a woman is anymore. It's, it's coming true. The scripture has come true before our very eyes. We see it in the text. Professing to be wise. Boy, we claim to be more wise than ever today. Professing to be wise, they became fools and their foolish hearts were darkened and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the incorruptible animals and four-footed creatures and so forth. And then what does God do? Give them over to homosexuality, which is now rampant in our nation today. And so the despair really of our condition, beloved, is that we won't acknowledge God's righteousness. We won't acknowledge our helplessness and our sin. And we think that we can do it. We can make ourselves better. Isn't that what the whole world is doing? The whole woke movement is about that. A new morality. They're going to correct all their, you know, the previous generations who were so corrupt and they're so righteous. And it's all about righteousness. The environmental movement, it's all about righteousness. Every movement today, it's about we are good and you're bad if you don't agree with us. And yet they reject God and they reject his word. And they think that they're good and they're making themselves and others better. It's a great act of rebellion against God. Every one of them is an act of rebellion against God. Sin has enslaved our minds and hearts. According to Colossians 1.21, we are alienated from God in our minds. It's their minds, it's their will that they think they are using to make good choices and to make things better. And that's the very thing that makes them rebel more. You can't hope in the will. You can't hope in the mind, in the reason of man. That's what we use to deny God. 
So where is the power for salvation? How can we possibly have any power to overcome this, which even if we did admit it, which we don't, we still couldn't do anything about it. That's what's in the gospel. In the gospel is revealed a power from God that can save man. Now, what does this mean for our works, for our efforts? The view at the time of the Reformation was that God enables sinful man, but believing sinful man, by infusions of grace. That was their word, infusion. Infusion is like an injection, you know. You get a shot of something in your arm. Oh, you got some medicine in you, you're getting better now. Another shot, you're getting better. The more and more infusions, you know, the more and more goodness you have in you. And this is what the medieval view of the church was at the time of the Reformation, that God enables believing sinners by infusions of grace to achieve good works, which God then rewards with saving grace. But that it was all of grace, they say. Don't you see that? It's, it's infusions by grace that God gives you the ability to do the good works, to obey more and more to the point where God now accepts and rewards your obedience. So they wanted to make the works gracious, as it were, but you had to do the works. You had to cooperate with the grace. You had to do your part, and God would reward that. That is the system that our Reformed fathers completely rejected and stood their lives to the wall for, to reject that system. And that is the very same system today in those same sacramental groups. I've mentioned to you, I know I've been talking about the Federal Vision Group a lot because they're in the church, they're in the Reformed Church. And I know many of you have been plagued by those false doctrines. And so I am gonna continue to call them out because that's what I'm supposed to do. Paul named the false teachers, he named their names. This isn't some like, oh, let's disagree on when Jesus is coming back. This is the gospel. And I will preach against the false teachers. And the Federal Vision Movement is that movement today. They say the exact same thing. That God will give you the obedience. It's a gift. God gives it to you. You know, it's covenantal. And then you'll be able to do the works. And then God will reward your works with salvation for your house. Guaranteed as a matter of course. It's the exact same doctrine. God will give you the obedience and then he'll reward the God-given obedience. God will make you better and then your grace-filled works will get you or your house salvation. God will help you to be righteous and then he'll reward your righteousness. That is the very false gospel that the reformers rejected. It's the exact same thing. And it's the same false gospel that by the grace of God, all the reformed churches have rejected. They've all rejected. I told you all of Napark has rejected and denounced the federal vision movement because they're teaching the exact same thing. This is what Martin Luther was taught. He was taught that if you do what you can, as you get grace from the sacraments, you know, from the covenant, if you do what you can, God will give you more grace, the grace of salvation. Martin Luther says this about that 
teaching, there are many, this is a quote, there are many who indeed, for God's sake, regard temporal blessings as nothing and, and gladly renounce them. And he lists heretics among those, you know, temporal blessings. Okay, yeah, sure, that, that's no big deal. But Luther says this, but there are very few who regard also, listen, their spiritual gifts and their good works as nothing. That's what you have to do. There are very few, Luther said, who regard their spiritual gifts, their good works, their covenantal obedience, their faithfulness, that regard it as nothing. There are very few, Luther said, who regard their own good works, their spiritual gifts, their good works as nothing, seeking to obtain, listen, only the righteousness of Christ, though without this no one can be saved. That's the issue. The issue is salvation. You can't be saved if you believe that. If you believe somehow your good works are gonna be rewarded and you've earned it. Luther goes on and says this, they invariably desire and hope that their own works will be esteemed and rewarded by God. They teach it. You do your obedience, God will save you. Save your house. They invariably desire and hope that their own works will be esteemed and rewarded by God, but God's verdict forever stands. And then Luther cites Romans 9, 16, which is very insightful here. So then it is not of him who wills and it is not of him who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. Beloved, salvation is 100% by God's power. Your righteousness is 100% from God. Your salvation is 100% mercy, 100% grace. There is no work that God gives you that you do, and then salvation comes to that work. That's not the power of God to salvation. The power of God to salvation is a righteousness that doesn't come from you at all. And so thirdly, notice the righteousness of God. Notice the righteousness of God, verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, rather, is revealed from faith to faith. In the gospel is the righteousness of God. This is the power that avails for salvation to sinful man. Rome never denied. The medieval church that the reformers uh, re sought to reform, but they got thrown out. I should never say they left. They were thrown out. The, they never denied, Rome never denied, that salvation was by grace, always by grace. Through faith, always through faith. But it was grace that you got injected again into you from the sacraments or from the covenant, which made you better, but then you had to do your part. You see, you had to be faithful. And that's exactly the same thing that's being said today. That it's by grace through faith, the grace of the covenant, this objective grace, but then you have to do your part. And then God will reward your obedience. The reformers answered then, and the Reformation churches answered now, that the righteousness by which we are justified is entirely an alien righteousness. It in no way comes from us. Listen to Martin Luther's quote on this. Quote, God does not save us by our own but by an extraneous righteousness, one that does not originate in us, but comes to us from beyond ourselves, one that does not arise on the earth. How more clearly could he say it? But comes down to us from heaven. All of our salvation, not just the beginning of it, and then you do your part. 
All of it has to come down from heaven your entire life long. You know, it's funny, Luther, before he understood this, he was trying to do his part. He was trying to cooperate with the grace that God had given to him by which he was supposedly able to do good works, by which God would give him more grace. He tried desperately to do that. But Luther had one problem. God in his grace, in his sovereign grace, had given Luther enough humility and enough honesty to truly evaluate his works, to really look at his best works, at his most righteous deeds. We're talking about a man who lived in the monastery, okay? Who spent hours, because they had to confess their sins every day, he spent hours every single day in the confessional. At one point, he spent over six hours confessing the sins from the one day before. Mental sins. Not desiring God enough. Not desiring to put sin to death enough. Luther was racked with a real, somewhat, not perfectly, because it would have probably destroyed him. It would have destroyed anyone to perfectly see your sins. But with an accurate diagnosis of his works. And that's why the Roman system wouldn't work for him. It wouldn't work. Do your part and God will give you grace. God will give you the grace to do your part. And then God will give you new, new grace once you do your part. It wouldn't work for Luther. Because he could never do his part. He saw that. He could never do his part. Beloved, this kind of gospel only works for the proud. It only works for the arrogant. It only works for the strong, those who think they're strong, right? I can do my part and God will bless it. Because I'm better than those who don't do their part. That God's not going to bless. Luther understood that the righteousness of God, this, is, this was his problem, first of all. He thought, that, he thought that God's righteousness, and, and usually this is the case, the righteousness of God, as he read the Bible, meant that God is righteous. And if the righteousness of God means that God is righteous, then Luther's doomed, because Luther's a sinner. And he can't do anything. This whole system of Rome doesn't work for him. Everything he does is tainted with sin. And so he says, he writes that he hated the righteousness of God, because it condemned him and he hated it, even though he tried to, tell himself that he didn't. And then it was as he was preparing lectures on the book of Romans, on this text, that he was reading the commentaries and he writes in 1515 that he had understood everything. This is when he was studying to teach in 1515. He, was, he understood everything in the book except the one phrase in Romans 117, the righteousness of God. It didn't make sense to him. Because the righteousness of God, as Luther understood it, was that by which God will condemn sinners. It's that righteousness by which God himself is righteous, and therefore he cannot wink at sin. But then Luther read in a commentary by Aurelius Augustine that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is not that righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but it's a righteousness that God makes available to sinners in order that they can be saved. And when Luther saw that, and when he saw how that was exactly what Paul was talking about, he said it was like the gates of paradise swung open and he strode into heaven. And he never again racked his life and his brain and would sleep on the hard floor, shivering, almost freezing to death at night, would fast so often to try to put his sin to death that he permanently injured his digestive system. He never had to do that again because it was not his works anymore. Now he could say, as I told you several weeks ago, sin boldly, 
but rejoice and hope in Christ more boldly still. He understood at last that the righteousness by which God needed to justify him was entirely provided by God. And so Luther saw this righteousness, God provided it. Justification, in other words, is not a process. You get some righteousness, you do your part, you get some more, you do your part. It was a pronouncement. Justification is not a change in character. It's a change in status. You who are a sinner, I say you are righteous because of Jesus. So how do we get that righteousness? Fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the instrument of faith. Fourthly and lastly, notice the instrument of faith. Verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So there's the power of God. There's power in the gospel message because it offers a righteousness that does avail with God because it's perfect, because it's the righteousness of Jesus. But how do we get it? You see it all through the text, right? To everyone who believes, verse 16. From faith to faith, verse 17. The just shall live by faith. Faith, belief is all through this verse because that's how we receive the power of God for salvation, which is a righteousness that God himself provides, which is the good news of the gospel, beloved. If you're a sinner, this is good news. If you think you're righteous, this probably isn't good news because now you're gonna be like everyone else and not be able to show how much better you are. But if you know you're a sinner, this is good news. To everyone who believes, from faith to faith. Yes, from the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because it began with the Jews. They had it all the time in the Old Testament. The Old Testament taught over and over again that God would provide the righteousness. Notice how we read it in our call to worship and in our scripture reading. Look at the first section of all in our call to worship. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed. Do you see how in classic Hebrew parallelism, God's salvation is parallel with his righteousness. Somehow his righteousness is going to be his salvation. How does that work? His righteousness would condemn sinners, not if it's a righteousness that he gives to sinners in order that he won't condemn them. And we see the same thing in our scripture reading. Look at the end of the first paragraph. My righteousness will be forever my salvation. Again, righteousness parallel, synonymous with salvation. Over and over again, the Old Testament thought that God would provide his righteousness and that was Israel's salvation. Isaiah 46, 13, I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king. He will act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. And you know it all, right? The Lord, our righteousness. Somehow Jesus, the Lord, will be, is our righteousness. Again, in Jeremiah's time, what they knew is to trust in God for righteousness. That's what Abram did, right? He believed in God and God reckoned it to him for righteousness. Abram's righteousness was not his works. It was by faith given to him as a gift. What he didn't know was who was going to earn that, how it was going to happen. And we know that was from his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived that perfectly righteous life. But over and over again, one more passage, Isaiah chapter 
54, verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which arises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. It sounds like no more condemnation, Romans 5, right? This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their righteousness is from me. That's what God says. Their righteousness is from me. In Isaiah 61, 10, I will greatly rejoice in my Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. When you see how the gospel was there for anyone who would believe in God to look to his gift of righteousness, not to themselves. The Jews were never taught to look to their works. They were taught to look to God for grace and that they were to be believe in him. And just as their father Abram was reckoned, it was reckoned for righteousness. So also if they believed, it would be reckoned for righteousness. And so this is the doctrine, beloved, of imputation. The last big word I want to give you today, that the moment you believe, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to you. He does it through the instrument of faith. That's what this text is talking about. The instrument of faith. To everyone who believes, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. To everyone who believes, the gospel is the righteousness of God given to you. And there you are standing in God's righteousness. How can he condemn you? How can he condemn you when you have his righteousness that he has earned for you, that he has provided for you? This is the life and death of Jesus Christ. And this is what it means from faith to faith. I know people struggle with that. and There's all sorts of different theories. Beloved, I think it's pretty simple. It means from faith first to last. This is why after about 10 years of following him, eight or nine years actually, it's not until uh, Genesis 15, after God's called him out of uh, his father's house and his country and his family, and he believes, Hebrews says he believes, and he went to a country, he believed, he believed, he believed. Not until chapter 15 does it say, and he believed God, and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. Because no matter how long you live, no matter how many good works you do, it's always and entirely by faith alone that God declares you to be righteous. It's always and entirely by Christ's righteousness alone that God justifies you and accepts you. This is from faith to faith. Listen to some of the other places we see this kind of teaching. Uh, just to give you an example. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, what? From glory to glory. It's always glory. From glory to glory, even when you feel like it's not glorious, God is at work. He's transforming you from glory to glory. Psalm 84, verse 7. They go from strength to strength, each one, as he appears before God in Zion. We don't fail as believers. We go from strength to strength, always in strength. Even when we sin, God is going to turn that around. 2 Corinthians 2, 16. To one, a fragrance from death to death, it's always death to the reprobate, to other a fragrance from life to life, it's always life. This is what we see over and over again. Psalm 144, verse 13, let their gardeners be full, for producing kind to kind. Proverbs 27, 24, man has not strength and power forever, neither does he transmit it from generation to generation. Do you see how every time it's always the same thing? They proceed from evil to evil, Jeremiah 9, 1. They're always evil. Hopefully I've made the case. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's never obedience. It's never your faithfulness. It's always from faith to faith. There's no other way to get the righteousness from God and there is no other righteousness 
to get. And that's why Paul says, the just shall live by faith. That itself is a quote of the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, the just shall live by faith. And that means that the person who is just doesn't live by his righteousness, he lives by his faith, by his faith. The justified person lives only by his faith. In fact, that verse is in scripture four times, the just shall live by faith. Paul quotes it from Habakkuk 2.4, but it's in the New Testament three times. But listen to the other words around it that prove that the just shall live by faith means that we live by the imputed righteousness of Christ and not at all by our works. Habakkuk 2.4, the first half of the verse, behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. See, the opposite of living by faith is to be proud. You don't need to live by faith. You have your works. That's why Jesus said, I I didn't come for the righteous. I came for those who know they're sick. Everybody's sick, but the righteous don't think they are. So I can't do anything for them. Galatians 3.11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Living by faith is the opposite of being justified by the law. Beloved, this is the gospel The gospel that God, by his grace, restored to the church after it was darkened more and more for centuries preceding. He restored it to the church at the time of the Reformation. This doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ given to the believer by faith alone, the power of God for salvation, it was called by John Calvin, the hinge on which everything turns. It was called by Martin Luther, the article upon which the church stands or falls. And that's because it's the article upon which you and I and everyone we know will stand or fall. May God have mercy on our church. May he have mercy on the world and restore this truth more and more each day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reformation. We thank you for the imputed righteousness of Christ. Lord, we can't thank you enough in all of eternity that you sent Jesus to earn our righteousness, to bear our sins, so that we could receive salvation as a free gift, not at all earned by us, not at the beginning, not at the middle, not at the end. We earn none of it for ourselves or for anyone else. It's a free gift when we believe. So help us to believe. Help us to be not like those who hesitate, who turn back, but to believe in the gospel, to believe in Jesus And Father God, how we pray that you would again bring a mighty movement, a mighty reformation, a mighty revival in your church, that your church would cry out that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, because of Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.